everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. We're working our way in chronological order. We are currently in the middle of the hidden years. And frankly, as much as I'm enjoying this ride, I can't wait to be done with the hidden years so we can move on to other things. Uh, today, when we get there, we're going to be reviewing issues numbers 13 and 14. I will set up the complicated continuity in the latter half of the show. I am thrilled to be joined by two incredible voices from two different eras of X-Men continuity today. Uh, the schedule just kind of turned out this way, and I'm actually really happy. Uh, we are joined today by Carl Ballers and by Jason Lowe. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, let me know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And our ridiculous question for opening today is, uh, have you ever bedazzled anything? We'll talk about why that's relevant later. Uh, can we begin with Carl? Carl, it's such an honor to meet you and have you on the show. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me on the show, man. It's an honor to be here. Uh, my name is Carl Ballers. Uh, my gender pronoun is he. Uh, and I have worked in the comic book industry um, for over 30 years now uh, as intern, assistant editor, submissions editor, editor, associate editor, and senior editor, but also um, most notably to me as a writer, uh, where I've been able to uh, work on some of the uh, characters that I read growing up, uh, growing up and edit that out so, so it's growing up. <laughs> some of the characters that I read growing up and, um, yeah, it's just been a thrill and um, it's had its highs and slows. It's good days. It's bad days. Uh, but uh, I'm still standing. You have a pretty historic career. I'm excited to talk about uh, some things with you today. Uh, Carl, have you ever bedazzled anything? Uh, I have never bedazzled anything. <laughs> Not that you I can, I can honestly, I thought I thought long and hard about it. And uh, I can I can't recall ever bedazzling. Can you think of a, a trend? I know I know you have a couple of daughters. So can you think of a trend that uh, perhaps like bedazzling that they may have enjoyed? Bedazzling besides another trend outside of bedazzling. Well, my my daughters aren't aren't very trendy. They're uh, they're sort of uh, they're sort of like me. They they kind of walk their own path. Uh, they're really into anime now, which is which is you know I guess that's the current trend. Uh, Anime is a much better choice. Uh, the, so the reason we're doing bedazzling, uh, we're we're gonna pick up uh, Angel's evil uncle Bert today, <laughs> and on a one gotcha. of the one of the uh, issue covers, it, it shows a uh, uh, in giant letters bedazzled. Uh, it's uh, it's ridiculous. Uh, let's go right. over to Jason Low next. Hi, Jason. It's so great to meet you. Hey, Chad. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, yeah, pleasure being on the show. Finally, <laughs> I'm so happy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so my name is Jason Lowe. Uh, my pronouns are he and him, and people might know me for uh, my works on X Men Unlimited, doing uh, stories like the the Madrox and and Strong Guy Saga, uh, the the Birthday for Jubilee story, um, the Lila Ch Cheney in a dating show. I've also created uh, a a spider, uh, a, a new spider character for the Spider Verse and uh, Marvel Voices Spider Verse. His name is Spider Friend, and um, yeah, <laughs> and uh, a bunch of other just random Marvel stuff. Really fun. Jason also had a really fun episode of Cerebro. A lot of people are probably familiar with. 
Uh, Jason, have you ever bedazzled anything? <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the first time I discovered uh, the silver markers back when I was like 11 years old and I was customizing DC action figures and I got I took this uh, the steel action figure the the John Henry Iron steel action figure and I just used that silver marker just to like shine him up even more and it was a very sticky situation because <laughs> uh, the, the the silver rank uh, doesn't go well on action figures as well. So, like, at first it looks bedazzled, but then after that, like, my hands started <laughs> looking bedazzled and, and, and very messy. And, yeah, it, it was a very messy, bedazzled moment. <laughs> This is a this is a question I should have saved for the next time I have a bunch of drag queens on my show because they will all have bedazzling stories. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of this show. I am also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a uh, writer and a documentarian. I uh, I have never bedazzled anything, but it was fun to revisit growing up in the 80s and 90s. Some of the different trends I saw my sisters or peers use. I was a pretty reserved kid in a lot of ways, but uh, seeing people, I don't know, I'm thinking of all these trends, like when we used to like wear uh, like little pin buttons down like the lapels of like uh, jean jackets in the 80s, or uh, even the modern trend of like wearing sweatpants that have like the word juicy on the ass, <laughs> something like that. It feels weirdly, <laughs> weirdly akin to this strange trend, uh, but that has nothing to do with our show today. Uh, so I want to start by just getting to know the two of you a little bit. Let me ask the same question to begin. I'd love to hear a little bit about your origins uh, from uh, comic book fans into comic book professionals. Uh, Carl, will you take that one first? Uh, sure. Um, well, I started out as a comic book fan very early on. Um, I think I started while well, I was looking at the pictures in comics before I could even read and trying to follow the stories that way. But once I learned to read, it was pretty much a wrap. I was I was reading everything I could get my hands on. And back then, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, comics were still in the habit of reprinting lots of material from the Golden Age and the Silver Age. So I grew up reading all of that stuff. So I had a very good working knowledge of comics by the time I was 10. I had read just about everything from Marvel, DC, Archie, Harvey, Atlas, whatever comic publishers were out, even the, uh, the older magazines like Warren um, and Erie magazine that my brother um, would get his hands on, you know, I would read that stuff. So by the time I was 12, 13, I understood comics. I got it. Um, I was more of a Marvel fan than a DC fan growing up. Uh, the Marvel stories just had a continuity to them that I just I just bought into. I, I love the, the interconnectivity of that whole world. It just, it, it really worked and said something. Um, DC, um, in retrospect, I have to give them props because their line was more diverse than Marvel. Like there was a lot of weird shit going on in DC Comics that Marvel <laughs> just didn't have. You know, it was just, it was out there and very creative. And I appreciate those stories for what they gave me as well. Um, I became an X-Men fan um, in the, I'd say, early 80s, late 70s, mainly when uh, Chris Claremont was writing the book and John Byrne, who we will be discussing later in this podcast, uh, 
was the penciler on the book with Terry Austin inking. And they turned out classic storylines uh, involving Sentinel, Savage Land, and ultimately Dark Phoenix and Days of Future Past, which uh, I think X-Men writers, including myself, have been going back to uh, those stories to uh, further tell more stories for, about the X-Men um, based off of those. So that was when I really got into the characters, fell in love with them. And um, I think around that time or shortly thereafter, that was when I decided I wanted to uh, get a career in comics. Uh, I wanted to write, I wanted to tell these stories. I wanted to be a part of it. Um, and I kind of been doing that as a kid um, already because um, this is gonna sound very weird, but. Uh, when I was a kid, um, we, you know, we were living on a, what people would call now a fixed income. So uh, my mom didn't have the money to like, you know, buy all these toys for me, uh, you know, with comic book characters like Captain America. But I remember Mego was putting out the whole line of toys, but you know, they were really expensive back then um, for, you know, for kids. Um, so what I did was I would, um, I would draw the characters on a piece of white paper, color them and cut them out. So I just kept doing this with all the characters I loved until I had like this shoebox filled with like 500 characters that were just cut out characters. And I would take them and I would um, kind of tell my own stories and my own adventures with them. And I think that kind of influenced me to actually become a writer and to want to tell a story and to start making my own comic books even when I was a kid. Uh, and um, that eventually led me to Marvel Comics. Uh, where Carl, I, that, um, that does not sound as weird as you think. You're not only describing my own childhood. I'm hearing like I've seen Jason not as well. I have a I have children that are 14 and 11 that are currently engaged in designing literally an entire realm of Pokemon because they love po they're redesigning them for their own original realm, which they right. made which they've named Tapenade because they read it off of a bottle of sauce. <laughs> and uh, they're also writing a prequel to uh, the Legend of Zelda series, and they spend hours and hours every day. This is what people do when they love things. Uh, it's, it's yeah. we, we get it. Uh, and then you were, you were talking about how you, uh, how you started at Marvel. Yeah, I started at Marvel. Um, uh, um, throughout high school, I knew that I wanted to get into comics somehow, that I wanted to break into comics, but I just, I didn't know how I was going to do that. Um, I used to draw quite a bit. Um, so I, I tried my hand at, um, you know, drawing my own comic and I realized, oh my God, this is incredibly difficult. And I think that it gave me an appreciation for what, uh, comic book artists, um, you know, have to go through and what they contribute um, to the medium. Um, but I was also a writer and I, you know, I uh, wanted to tell stories. So when I was in college, I was taking tons of classes on writing stories. I was reading books on writing and I was doing all this stuff. And uh, one day my girlfriend at the time, she comes back and she's like, and she's like Hey, you know, I was down at the internship office and you know that they have internships for Marvel Comics. And I just like, I dropped everything and I, I huffed it over there and I filled out an application to get an internship at Marvel Comics. And uh, I got a call for an interview. This is, for, you know, for the next semester. I got a call for an interview. Um, it was in, let's say it was January of 91. And I went up to the offices of Marvel, even though I had been there once before. 
um, on a on a on a personal tour with some friends. Uh, a friend of mine in high school, his dad went to the same um, gun club as Larry Hama, who was the what? Conan editor. And uh, Larry Hama said, "Hey, your kid's into comics. Hey, if he ever wants to come by Marvel, I'll give him a tour." So his son went along, and he dragged me and my other friend one day in in the mid '80s up to the offices of Marvel Comics, where we uh, we got a personal tour from Larry Hama, and he showed us around. I think they were they were uh, preparing X Factor at that time. X Factor was not a thing yet; it was just in the planning stages. And we didn't even know that Jean Grey was coming back yet. It was still a secret. And when we went into the office, they they tried to misdirect us. And they told us that the fifth member was going to be um, the Dazzler. <laughs> <laughs> which kind of which kind of ties into this whole, the theme of this whole episode. Uh, so <laughs> we'll get back to the not Dazzler. The, not, not, Dazzler. Not, the, not, the, not the same Dazzler, but uh, <laughs> Dazzler nonetheless. Probably would have been interesting if it had been uh, Warren Worthington's... Uh, uncle <laughs> so um so yeah i got in a tour of marvel back when i was 14 but when i was uh 19 i uh went up and i interviewed for uh you know this editorial internship and um i think i waited about a week or two all of my friends were like waited with bated breath and then i got a call from um the internship coordinator, and she told me that uh, I had um, I had interviewed with Ralph Macchio and with uh, the Spider-Man office, and I had gotten both internships, and they wanted to share me between the offices. So, uh, yeah, that was in my junior year of college, and while I was there, I just learned comics, just the business inside out, how comics are made. We got pages in. Um, like pages that you could hold, the art boards. I remember holding John Romita Jr.'s pages from um, Born Again, Daredevil Born Again, oh, and reading Frank Miller's scripts. And it was just like, it was just so crazy. But they treated the interns like crap, I have to say. Like a lot of the people who work there, especially in production, like we'd be making photocopies and they just come up to us and tell us, get a, you know, get out of here. Like, you know, like just cut in front of us. And just be very rude about it. No excuse me. It's just, I just remember that as being kind of not very cool. And um, when I actually got hired at Marvel, like a couple of years later, it was hard not to look at those people. And, you know, now when you're an editor, they're kind of being nice to you. But when you're an intern, they're kind of treating you not, not the way I think people should treat interns. I've heard, I've um, heard a few stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um later on when I was internship coordinator at Marvel in 2008, like I I made sure that the interns were treated with respect just because I had gone through that. Um You've got that's uh, jumping ahead, just just jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah, you've got uh, a longer history with the company I think than even I realized after doing research. Let me pause you there for just a second cuz I want to talk about sure. your writing trajectory. But Jason, let me ask you the same question. Uh, yeah, my origin story. Uh, I, I first started getting into comics, um, picking them up at the, the convenience store uh, near my house. And I'll just go for whatever that looked cool. And like Batman was probably one, one of the first comics for sure. Um, I was very into G.I. Joe at the time when I was like four or five. So uh, I picked some G.I. Joe comics then. Uh, 
there, there was this one uh, New Mutants comic, uh, New Mutants 54, where Cannonball looked like this G.O. character to me. And I was like, why Why is like sci-fi and this on this cover? And why is he like flying like a rocket ship? And that, that was my first um, gateway into the X-Men universe, what was through... Uh, the new mutants and yeah that was a very very saucy comic for a five-year-old like getting to see uh uh celine and um yeah and uh tessa and and uh i i think i've matured <laughs> as as a five-year-old just looking at that um and um from there, I, I, I just real, just I, a real uh, quick aside, Jason. I I think that's a story for a lot of people too, because the X Men there's a simpleness to them because it's superpowers and you know action figures clashing together. But there's a level of sophistication and even sex to the stories that I think for young minds are very impressionable and really stick with us as we go. Yeah, but but go ahead. Yeah, and, and I think I only like fully like would read a comic when I. I was like eight or, or or nine uh when i had more of that comprehension like i, I just bought the comics just for the pictures but uh, i liked the whole concept of it and and i and and I, i've always drawn ever since i was five to the point where i was like what if i like like draw a picture then take another picture and, and then like that's that's my first sequential work and then learning how a stapler works and then like just stapling that and it's like hey i just made a book of pictures wicked and that was me when i was six and then you know fast forward to uh uh watching a show called caroline in the city and about uh a, a bachelorette in in new york who makes a living doing comics and she has this her own studio loft uh where she lives and and and, and does her comic strips and knowing kind of like the ins and outs of like of what's expected of of uh making a, a comic strip for a newspaper where you have to like do all these uh you have to do a whole backlog of comic strips so uh, i was like creating my own characters and like making eight comic strips a day <laughs> and and this is me when i'm like 11 and 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 hoping that you know that that the Toronto Star will will publish my my comic strips uh because hey I did the work right and uh yeah that, that's when I, I I knew I wanted to get into comics and uh got into Sheridan College uh for illustrations and and did intern at Raid Studio uh where I that's where I first met uh Chip Zdarsky where uh this was way before this is like 2000 and um 2003 and yeah he, he went by his real name steve murray and he was just uh an in-house illustrator for uh, a national newspaper and he would help me get some spot illustration gigs for the national post or the globe and mail because he worked for both uh he did freelancing for both and uh yeah what what Whenever uh, like a, a comic gig or a illustration gig, uh, he didn't want to do, he would pass it down to me. Uh, and this was while I was creating my own mini comics, uh, and 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 selling them at conventions for for decades. Until fast forward later, uh, I 
uh, created my own series called The Pitiful Human Lizard, which uh, got sex successfully kick started, and it's it's a uh, it's Toronto's own pretty decent superhero, which got garnered a lot of national attention. That like you know people start notice noticed. Oh wait, Toronto has its own superhero, and it's this guy, the Pitiful Human Lizard. Uh, so I was doing that for five years uh, until Chip um, was like, hey, would you want to be the, the artist to uh, uh, my new project uh, for Comixology? And and that was Afterlift, where uh, it was a series that we worked together about this um, rideshare uh drive to hell where this uh 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 rideshare driver she uh, happens to pick up the devil who's using her to transport souls to hell uh and and that got us uh, an eisner award um and uh that that from there that kind of opened some doors um but the funny thing of of how i got a job with marvel was um so while i was working on pitiful human lizard i did this sample page of multiple man it was a two-page spread it was a choose your own adventure where it started off in one panel you had four dupes and then they would all split off in four different directions and you're following you can follow each of them uh in their own path they're all trying to uh complete this mission in, in four different ways. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I put that out on social media and, you know, it, it got some likes and stuff, but it was seven years later, seven years after that, that uh, uh, Dan Slott found it and then he shared it with uh, Tom Brevoort and he was like, I don't know how I'm going to, um fit this in in our comic in our book but i definitely want it in there somehow and uh he reached out to me and and uh he introduced me to a bunch of editors and and then we went on from there uh, i i think uh as i'm meeting people and getting to know different uh stories along the way i just i love the reverence we have in our voice i love the randomness of people's journeys my girlfriend told me about an internship versus this thing i wrote or drew seven years ago got some attention <laughs> uh, i'll just note quickly chip sadarsky's run on daredevil has been just such an incredible ride uh that's a complete side note but uh, god it's 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 really incredible uh you are both officially invited back for longer conversations on the show because i'm really fascinated by both of your journeys and want to hear more uh carl i want to focus in on your writing for uh, a little bit now this is me kind of observing outside carl is known uh widely for doing a lot of sonic the hedgehog which we won't talk about today but Boy, do I have a lot of hours uh, in my teenage years playing Sonic the Hedgehog on Sega Genesis logged away, which I really, I really love. Uh, you did a number of uh, projects for Marvel, and I could you can see your career build when you go through the timeline. There's backup stories in Marvel Comics Presents. Uh, you've got some stories in some different uh, annuals along the way. And then you launched two really big X-Men books that have uh, a surprising uh, amount of X-Men 
continuity woven in at the time. They're really, they're really for a first time X-Men project. Both of these are just huge. You did the, uh, the cable, or excuse me, the machine man bastion annual, uh, which gives us the big story about Bastion being the uh, the Nimrod master mold mix, which is he's such a weird character. Uh, followed up by the Cable Annual ninety nine, which is a shocking view into Mister Sinister and what he represented for the characters at the time. Uh, then launching into the X fifty one series. I know I'm lumping a lot into this this, uh, but uh, tell me a little bit about your journey into working on X Men and and these stories that you worked on. They're really great. Well, I always had a love for the X-Men characters, um, as I was stating before. Um, I came in as a fan, and, um, you know, when I when I got into uh, Marvel, it was the Jim Lee era. It was, uh, it was the, probably the most exciting era of X-Men at the time, outside of, uh, you know, the, the John Byrne, Chris Claremont, Dark Phoenix stuff. It was uh, sort of a shot in the arm that the book needed. So it was it was exciting to see that unfolding, um, to see X Men, you know, kind of getting its due. Uh, so I, I was really excited to work on that stuff. And I remember um, during um, 1996, Marvel had gone bankrupt, mm -hmm. and thousands of staff were getting laid off, and they did it in waves. It was like some people got laid off, and you know. Um, would get laid off in January, then some people would get laid off in the summer, then some people would get laid off in the winter. I got laid off in um, January of 1996. And I remember Bob Harris, you know, calling me into his office and, you know, and saying, hey, Carl, we're sorry, we have to let you go, but, you know, we want to keep you, but we just can't. And, you know, it was, you know, we're getting laid off, you know, it sucks. Um, so after that, I kind of, I knew I still wanted to work in comics and I knew I had written some stuff previously. So I still had that bit of cachet. And um, around that time I had met uh, Michael Higgins, who used to be the assistant editor on Fantastic Four, Alpha Flight, a number of books in uh, the eighties that I was actually reading as a fan. And he had become a letterer, but he had also written, I believe, Power Pack and uh, some issues of Conan. Uh, we, um, we became good friends and we had all these ideas that we were bouncing off of each other and we decided to make a run of it as co-writers. So we just started pitching all of this material to Marvel, uh, to all the editors. And, um, we had gotten this, uh, machine man pitch that we really were, were trying to get off the ground and they were really, they were really copping to it. They really liked what they had seen on you know coming from us on paper and that kind of they were figuring out a way to bring machine man into the mcu again because at that point no one had faith in anything if it wasn't x-men because x-men was the top seller it was dollar signs x-men and spider-man if your books didn't have x-men and spider-man in it they wouldn't really sell and that was when i came up with this idea to sort of what if machine man got infected by sentinel technology somehow and sort of became a foil for the x-men but also could be a potential ally and they really loved that idea and that's how we set about doing the whole cable bastion nimrod machine man story because that was going to be the storyline that kind of set it all up and from there it was very easy to 
lead into uh, the X-51 uh, Machine Man series, which was also co-written by Michael. And, which, a lot uh, of, which a lot of people don't remember as an X-Men book, but it's very much an X-Men book. You have the X-Men no, it's, it's, and Hellfire it's a stealth, Club. It's and a stealth X-Men book. Yeah, yeah. And we even, we even got a little Avengers in it because we had uh, Justice and Firestar who were mutants in the Avengers at that time. Uh, so we were really... We're really trying to, you know, just use the history to sort of like build that series. And uh, it's very, it's it's a very, um, uh, I think it's a love letter to like, you know, the old school Marvel type of storytelling. You know, when I look at it now, um, I'm just like, wow, did I ever write like that? That's like so, so old school. Uh, <laughs> now, I've my listeners, oh, oh, I'm sorry, please go ahead. Sorry, my, my I just died for a second. Oh, you're okay. Uh, so my listeners are familiar with Master Mold, who's the, the big machine that spits out the Sentinels. Uh, a later character is uh, Nimrod, who travels from the future, and he's a really scary Sentinel. Chris Claremont gives yeah. us a story called The Siege Perilous, which we talked a bit in the Havoc trial for my listeners who aren't familiar with the continuity. <laughs> and and the, uh, the Nimrod and the Master Mold passed through the Siege Perilous. And for years, nobody knew what became of them. Then we meet this crazy robot guy named Bastion, We'll talk about him another time. But uh, yeah. Carl got to tell us the story along with Michael about Bastion being the product of Master Mold and Nimrod passing through the Siege Perilous together, which is one of those just weird X-Men continuity things. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange story. Uh, do you want to yeah, talk yeah. about that at all, Carl? Sure, yeah. That's that's um, that's a that's a great story because, like I said, it's, it's really taking the elements that other writers have seeded into the Marvel Universe and just kind of just kind of making a mix of it, like throwing that recipe together because you have the Siege Perilous, which is this weird portal that Claremont created that I think it's connected to the Captain Marvel, the, the Captain, I'm sorry, the Captain, Captain Britain, Britain. Yeah. continuity. And uh, when, when you're sucked through it, you emerge on the other side, judged but changed in some way. And we, I remember this big fight between the X-Men and Central Park with Master Mold and Nimrod and I think Sylvester Jewett and Claremont wrote it. And a bunch of them, like I think Rogue gets sucked through, but so does the Master Mold and, uh, and Nimrod. So we were thinking, well, what if this character Bastion, who, and, and this is just goes to show you how nothing in comics is almost never planned. You know, we were just like, well, Bastion is this mystery character who's been going after the X-Men. And there have been planting seeds that he could be possibly cybernetic. We're thinking, well, what if we took that ultimate sentinel from the future who's sent to hunt mutants and we take the Genesis, the, the first uh, sentinel, the creator, and send them through the uh, Siege Perilous and then combine them into one being, what would we get? And the answer was Bastion. X-Men is so weird, you guys. <laughs> now, Jason, you've had a similar trajectory, although separated by a few years. We see you working in other places and uh, a, a different trajectory, but we're watching you do these backup stories in various places, uh, the X-Men Unlimited stuff, and then building into larger things. We just had the announcement of your uh, Storm versus Iron Man story coming out soon. Uh, so it's really fun to see you getting bigger and bigger projects. What's it been like working with uh, X-Men Unlimited? You've been known for a little bit more of multiple man and jubilee more than anything else uh and strong guy of course uh yes. but you're you're telling these really fun stories that delve deep into continuity that a lot of people aren't touching on lately yeah it's it's really crazy because uh i mean i'm a huge multiple man 
fan. I'm actually wearing a multiple man shirt. If you can't see underneath, it. underneath uh, a hat that says the word bitter on it, which is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> My friend's brand, uh, Paulson Youngly, who is on the Mandalorian. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the, the man, the, the multiple man stories, I am a huge fan of, um, the Peter David and, and Leonard Kurt run, uh, the X factor investigation stuff that I was like, uh, yeah, I, I, I just feel so lucky. I, I, I'm, I'm able to tell, Oh, I was able to tell, uh, his story, uh, Lauren, um, uh, Lauren Amaro, who, uh, is the editor I work for. She approached me to do five issues of X-Men Unlimited, And she was like, you can pick any X-Men you want. Uh, they're they're all available for you, and and so of course I was like, I'm going to devote three issues to to Multiple Man and Strong Guy, and then and then the other is going to be Jubilee and Dazzler. But unfortunately, Dazzler was used for someone else, and I was like, all right, well, I'm going to repurpose repurpose that fifth pitch and, and use uh, Layla Cheney, and and that really worked out well for for a character like her. Um. I always feel lucky whenever I'm given this opportunity to work on multiple band, especially when it's a lot of like these crazy ideas. And I'm like, is this actually going to happen? Is this actually going to go to print? Like the second arc, like I, I even titled <laughs> it ex friends. Like, like I would, I would just elevate their, their friendship from the first arc uh, and take them up into space. And I was like, this is going to happen. Right. And, and I, I think it, like it, it was starting to kick in when like uh, the PR people reached out to me, they, like they wanted to cover the story for the website. I was like, all right, I guess it's, it's going to happen. Awesome. And, and for, for context, for context, guys, multiple man's real name is Jamie Madrox. And Jason gave us an evil version of him in space named Mad Rocks, which is amazing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that was that was my uh, my third uh, my third arc, which was kind of funny because I pitched this arc to, to Lauren uh, last year in New York Comic Con. And I didn't hear back for like months. It's like maybe they were uh, I wonder if, if I got Lauren in trouble for uh for getting her to, to work with me on X friends. But then, uh, no, Lauren like was like, Hey, yeah, we really like that idea with, with, uh, uh, the X friends teaming up with the fantastic four and, and bringing back, uh, captain mad rocks again. And I was like, all right, this is, this is amazing. Uh, so yeah, every, every gig I do, I'm always second guessing myself. It's like, is this actually going to happen? Is this going to see to print? I don't know. And then if, if, finally does there's a there's a joy to your writing that just it makes me smile every time i written some read something written or drawn by jason low there's there's just something you you can just tell you're playing with your toys and it's so much fun <laughs> that you're having uh and you're working with characters uh you know like layla miller for example that that are beloved but not getting a lot of attention who's done a lila cheney story in recent years uh i'm really it's it's really fun getting to know you because i I'm, I'm just enjoying your work so much well, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's always a pleasure working on these characters, uh, especially when I got the opportunity to work on the the Iron Man annual with Storm. I was like, oh my god! Like they want me to like write a a, a comic featuring Storm. Like I, I feel like a character like her is like like I need to 
build myself up to that because here I am, like playing around with D-list characters where like I I won't have that much consequences with with any fan outrage if, if I do anything wrong. But then it's like right. well, like they're 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 trusting me with a major character like Iron Man and Storm. All right, well, um, I, I'm gonna really uh do my best here and i mean i i do my best in, in the other ones but i'm like i i i really made sure to to do a lot more research because it's it's a pretty good story arc we got here where we're taking out like old feuds uh from the past and 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 bringing them back into light um especially when there's chaos magic involved with uh, <laughs> the contest of chaos story arc we, uh, we've recently got to introduce Storm onto my show in a couple of recent episodes featuring Stephanie Williams and Annie Senti. I'm just beginning, although I've read her for decades, literally, I'm just beginning to realize the complexity of this character. Because when I'm really delving in in these interviews and the research, it, it, a different character shows up. Um, I love hearing the, the reverence and the excitement in your voice, uh, Jason. Another beloved character for uh, X-Men fans is the a wonderful and complicated Emma Frost. <laughs> uh, now, when I, when I, uh, I like to share my journey to people. Uh, when I first reached out to you, Carl, it is because I had just done a character-focused episode on the character Adrienne Frost uh, with her creator, Jay Ferber. And I went back and reread the Emma Frost series for the first time in years. And my Lord, is it fun. And then I looked you up and I was like, wait, the Sonic the Hedgehog guy is also the writer of this like white woman in lingerie on the cover, <laughs> like very early 2000s, like uh, rich girl uh, drama mutant book. It's really fun. Tell me a little bit about your work on Emma Frost. Well, Emma Frost was, was a strange one. Um, because <laughs> I remember at the time, <laughs> Grant Morrison, I think, had had reintroduced her into new X-Men as a member of the team who was working with the X-Men, and she had this new diamond power. And um, at that time, I had written, um, I'd written a Muties miniseries, which we had briefly spoken about, and uh, they kind of Marvel, they kind of liked what I was what I was doing, and I think at that point I was being very relentless with my pitches. I just wouldn't was not letting up. I was I was like in Joe Casada's ear like every day, just like not not letting up. Um, and they reached out to me and they said, "Hey, we're interested in doing a, an Emma Frost series." Um, well, there was there was two books I was asked to pitch for. One was Emma Frost. Another one was this book called Sentinel. Um, and, and, I, and uh, I have a I've talked to Sean McKeever on my show a few times about Sentinel. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so so yeah, so you're familiar. Uh, yeah, so the other one was Sentinel, and I remember writing this really long pitch for Emma Frost that would kind of take us into her origin and bring us, I think, by the end of the first year, full circle, um, uh, inner circle. I want to make a pun, but I won't. So, <laughs> but I guess I did anyway. So well, here we are. Uh, <laughs> so uh yeah i wrote this really long pitch um that by the end of it we'd, we would have seen where she was as a member of the x-men and as the uh you know uh ceo of frost industries and um they loved the pitch and then i started writing the book and almost immediately everything in the pitch got thrown out because 
we decided to go in a different direction. And I remember it was, um, it was the craziest, the craziest story um, because I wrote the first issue, the script for the first issue, and I turned it in. And I remember uh, Bill Jemis, who was, um, he was the publisher of Marvel at the time, he, uh, he had notes and I got the notes back from the editor, Mike Martz. And um, I made all the changes and resubmitted the script. And um, they asked for more changes. And we went through the process. I, I, I made the changes, did another draft and resubmitted it. And then I got a call saying that I was fired from the book. <laughs> Man. I got a call saying that I was fired from the book. They weren't happy with the script I had written. And that was kind of it. So I was like, oh man, that's a bummer. I was really kind of into that. And then two weeks later, I get a call from the editor and he says, hey, Bill Jemis, Joe Quesada, want to get on the phone with you like at three o'clock today to talk Emma Frost. Are you available? Hey, yeah, I'm available. So we get on the phone and Bill Jemis uh, basically gives me a complete list of things that he wanted different that were not in any of the initial notes that I had ever gotten um, in any of the previous drafts that I had done. I hadn't heard any of this stuff. So once I was able to hear from him directly what he wanted from the book, I was able to go and write the first issue and turned it in and they loved it. And from there, um, Emma Frost, I remember it was pretty successful when it came out, but the success of what it was, because that first issue, if you read it, it's very much like this YA coming of age story about this little rich girl who's in this troubled, wealthy family finding out that she has the power to read the minds of everyone around her. Yeah. And it changes everything. You know, it changes everything for her. And like, I saw that as where I started out. And I, I eventually wanted to evolve that into, you know, darker stories and take us like into someplace darker because, you know, it's Emma Frost, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the success of that, I think Marvel were like, oh, this is really cool. This is successful. It's getting reviewed well. You know, people ordered, you know, however many thousand units they need to consider something a success. And they were just like, let's stay here. Mm -hmm. As I, I was like, okay, how long do you want do you want us to stay here? Let's try six issues. Okay, that's like half the runtime on this thing, I thought, but okay, so we get six issues of Emma Frost coming of age, finding her way, rebelling against her family. And by the end of the sixth issue, she steps out into the world, and I'm thinking, okay. Now we're going to get into the Hellfire Club. But for some reason, they just didn't want me to do the Hellfire Club because it didn't fit with this YA image of the book that they had, you know, now given it. Which is hilarious so, because in rereading this book, these stories are very young adult, but the covers are probably among the most pornographic covers I've ever exactly. seen printed on a Marvel comic. Greg Explain that. Like, make it make sense. Tight, unbuttoned, like, panties with leather boots <laughs> like bustiers yeah she's like spread legged in a chair it's like inside is first this, like, issue <laughs> yeah it was it was kind of embarrassing kind of having to show people that like this is this is what i'm working on but look look at the inside it's not like that it's, it's, <laughs> imagine that it's really on, not like, like that 
the school's scholastic book fair, right? For kids. <laughs> right, right. And I think when they released it in digest format, they redid the covers where she's like a schoolgirl and she's holding books on the cover. And, you know, it's very, you know, it's very YA. But you that initial. Some, you give us the story of Christian Frost early on, too, which I wanted to poke uh, or touch on at least briefly, which is a rare kind of queer story at Marvel, at least at this time, where you see the. Uh, so Emma's father, Winston, has two daughters and a son. He's an awful person. Their mother is very caught up in her own stuff. And Christian is meant to be the heir to the family fortune or the family company. But because Christian is exhibiting signs of being gay and all three kids are mutants, or excuse me, there's four kids, uh, three daughters and a son. Yeah, there's four, yeah, yeah. Uh, and all four kids are mutants. There's this kind of power play where Christian ends up getting exposed as gay, attempts suicide, and then gets locked up in a psychiatric ward as a result. And I'm, I'm summing up a lot of, uh, of story that's really right, complex right. and dense, and you did a great job with it. But that was a bold story. Uh, speaking as a queer man, going back and reading that, I was like, oh, wow. It just, uh, it really got me. Uh, I don't know if, you, if you'd like to share thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Well, I remember, I remember Grant Morrison had kind of created the character. And I think we only saw him in like a couple of panels right. in, in, in New X-Men. And I, I, you know, my takeaway from it and, and the editorial takeaway was that here was a character who was, you know, a homosexual and who we could, you know, what was his story? And rather than sidestepping it, which was, you know, you know, the easy thing to do, we were like, well, let's tackle this head on. Let's, let's make it into something serious. Let's, let's sort of handle the issue of what would go on in this wealthy family that was all about influence and you know how things looked in appearances and yeah and just kind of crafting a very real relationship between between her and uh her brother i remember i think i think i was really happy when when i decided you know well it would be it would be cool if he's the one who does her makeup for the prom you know as uh, because the mother certainly couldn't fulfill that role and the father doesn't even want her going to the prom because it's beneath her so it was just like that kind of sweet, touching, uh, like I said, like YA sort of, you know, family drama. This stuff has been a fun aspect. This this stuff has been touched on in the modern continuity. Cena uh, Grace uh, brought Christian back in his Iceman series a few years ago. Now that now that Iceman is out and gay. Uh, they're now living on Krakoa, which is the mutant nation. And Iceman and Christian were dating for a period of time. But uh, Emma is running what they call the Hellfire Trading Company, which is a huge business for the mutant nation. And Christian's an integral part of that. Uh, so he's become a character that's, that's widely used. Uh, and, and your work with him matters. They, they reference it in continuity still. Okay. That's cool. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jason, this is a very simple question for you, but what makes uh, Strong Guy and Jamie Madrox such a good buddy comedy format? Um, I, I really love the, the kind of humor that they brought back in the X, uh, the X Factor 90s run um, of, of this, them just being a jokey pair. And I thought, wouldn't it be neat if, um, if I can just take this vehicle of, of using these characters and, and make them the Abbott and Costello of the Krakoa <laughs> world. Uh, it's, and, and yeah, what were, were they just go through all these misadventures and bump into like all these interesting characters like, um, like gladiator and, and, and 
the Star Jammers or the the monsters from Monster Island, and uh, yeah, they're just very fun characters. But also, I wanted to uh, give myself the challenge of um, because the, the thing was like a character like Strong Guy was left in a very dark place in the later uh, run uh, of uh, X Factor by Peter David, where he's like the king of hell. Yeah, so literally. He, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I really wanted to bring him back to that level of him like being that aspiring stand-up comedian type of guy joking around with, with Madrox and and that was my first challenge in, in the first story arc. And then uh, uh, see where that develops afterwards. What was the uh, second and third arc? I love the two of you weaving in this continuity into your stories. Uh, a really fun place to wind up this conversation. Uh, everybody that I talk to creates different characters along the way, and there's long lists of random mutants out there. Uh, so if nothing else, I'm interviewing the uh, creator of Astrid Bloom and also the creator of Sights. So uh, yes. there's, a, there's a long <laughs> list of mutant characters out there. Uh, okay, so with that, even though I have a lot of questions for both of you, oh, I, I got a list very quickly. The stuff we didn't talk about with Carl's career. Carl also wrote Soldier X and X-Men Declassified. And a Snowbird story and a, Nor and a North Star story and Wolverine hunger. Uh, there's a lot more that I would love to, uh, to interview you about. Well, yeah, but it's it's part of the franchise, which I which I love. Uh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna uh, jump into X Men: The Hidden Years, numbers thirteen and fourteen. Now, for both of you, let me say thank you. It is hard to jump into the middle of a series with this many plot lines going on. <laughs> this is what I've been wrestling with as I've been doing the Hidden Years content with shifting guests. But let me set up the issues very briefly. Uh, we just got to do X Men number twelve, which was the Sor or X Men: The Hidden Years number twelve, which is the big Sauron Magneto battle in the Savage Land. So here's where we'll give the previously in the Hidden Years. Iceman, Havoc, and Lorna Dane are just leaving the Savage Land after an epic fight with Magneto and Sauron, who took their memories of the fight from them afterward. Plotline number two, Beast and Professor X are confronting Ashley Martin, who is a mutant child who can bring objects to life. And she just did that with a sentinel they had to destroy. Also, her mom, Terry, is there kind of freaking out. Plotline number three, there's a mutant named Stefan Kruger who looks like Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and he can cancel or redirect mutant energies. He has captured Angel, Cyclops, and Marvel Girl. Uh, this is Jean in her classic blue and yellow costume here, as well as Avia, who's a mute bird lady with precariously placed feathers, and uh, Candy Southern, who is uh, Angel's girlfriend, who's in the famous green mini dress for this arc. And he has sold them all to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who at the time consists of Blob, Eunice the Untouchable, and Mastermind. I'm trying to keep this succinct, you guys. There's a lot of characters <laughs> in these books. Stefan Kruger also has a group of what he calls freaks. We're just going to call them his operatives working for him. Lastly, back in the early 70s, we just covered this on my show recently uh, with some incredible creators, but we got to meet the evil dazzler Bertram Worthington, who is the brother of Warren III's father, Warren Jr. Uh, he wanted to take over the company, got Warren Jr. involved in some diamond heists. And at the end of the story, uh, he was killed 
dot 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 because he dropped and they thought he was dead this is also where candy behind the scenes learns that angel is warren in the first place <sighs> so for long-term listeners of my show you're juggling all that but it's a lot of continuity to ask new guests to come on with uh today we're going to jump in first to x-men the hidden years number 13 which is titled blood and circuses it is from, which is a great title, actually, <laughs> but it is from October 2000. Uh, John Byrne is on writing pencils and letters, Tom Palmer on inks, Gregory Wright on colors, and Jason Liebig on edits. Uh, before we jump in quickly, uh, for, for Jason and Carl, what was it like for you to jump into the middle of this series? And or were you hidden or were you familiar with Hidden Years previously? Um, well, for me, I was familiar with Hidden Years previously when it was coming out. Um, I read several of the issues. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was seemed like a, a throwback X-Men book. So I wasn't too confused, but I was a little confused with the issues that I had to uh, read for this review because despite a lot of exposition and dialogue, I still don't know why, uh, why Candy Southern is wearing that Jean Grey, that green Jean Grey dress, like, <laughs> or why Jean is not, uh, <laughs> so yeah so yeah it, it is um you want to talk deep cuts this, uh, this is definitely an x-men deep cut yeah yeah and there's a lot of plots that don't really resolve themselves even after two two issues we're still in the same stories moving into the same by the way professor xavier uh with this like ashley terry martin story he's with them for like eight more issues <laughs> it goes on and on i'm telling you uh jason what was it for you to uh to jump into all this uh i mean it, it, it was a. Uh pretty wild like I, I i i knew of the series when it first came out but never really gotten into it until like like getting into it now where it's like I, I totally get it like this was during the period where i kind of paid less attention of uh like uh, like i only have like a few i've only read a few key issues here and there of uh you know of like with neil adams doing it but uh yeah, this this was quite a trip. Uh, it, it, it does feel <laughs> <laughs> like it, like there, there's a lot of like weird logic to it, where like you just got to accept it. Of uh, uh, like Bobby Drake like flipping over a car, <laughs> the discover <laughs> car. <laughs> it happens to have sentinel sentinel technology, and and he he happens to be. Uh, an expert of it, so he 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 he's able to flip it over and, and ride it. It's like, all right, sure. If that's a very quick explanation, why not? This is uh yeah, this is where we get lost in the love of the characters and just these random mutants. But there's a lot of characters going around, and these these books jump from plotline to plotline like by page. You'll see like some characters on a page, and then go back to another scene that lasts three pages, and then be somewhere else. It's a lot to juggle, but it's fun, and the art is beautiful. We do love uh, John Byrne honoring uh, Neil Adams in this way. Uh, and just for context, this book was coming out right in the era, uh, Carl, where you were working on the books. Uh, probably a, kind of a separate area, but uh, but it's it's wild to see the different types of books they were putting out at the time. Yeah, it was it was a great um, homage to, like I was saying, to like that Roy Thomas. Neil Adams period, which I had I had read that stuff as a fan and definitely some nostalgia for it because Neil Adams was just an incredible artist. Um, even though that was not, I'd say my X-Men or the most popular era of X-Men, but Same. I definitely I definitely could appreciate the history behind um that stuff. Um this stuff by Byrne is is really interesting. I like that 
it's going back to that era. Um, I think perhaps it's a little too uh, beholden to it. Um, and you can definitely see where Byrne lives as an X-Men fan. It's definitely in this Roy Thomas, Neil Adams era, because I think even in his fanfic stuff that he's doing now where he's drawing the X-Men, um, it's kind of picking up where he left off. It has these elements of Sentinels and the Savage Land. And, you know, I can, I can tell that that's how he defines the, the team. Now, Mastermind, Eunice the Untouchable, and The Blob are all early X-Men villains who were at least somewhat affiliated with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, whether they were members or they tried out for the team. Uh, later, they were on Factor 3 together. And then after that, they were also uh, part of the group that got captured by the Sentinels together, which is where we last saw them prior to this story. This story comes out in 2000, but it's set in the early continuity. These characters will go on to be villains in the Amazing Adventures series, when Beast turns blue and furry, and he fights the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which consi consists of these three members. Mastermind, of course, is one of the rapiest villains in X-Men history. He has illusion powers that will allow you to try to control your mind. In the Claremont era, we see a storyline where Mastermind slowly corrupts Jean Grey, who is possessed by the Phoenix Force, and she becomes Dark Phoenix as a result. But it's very clear that he uses his powers to convince her to have sex with him, which is very problematic. And Byrne is picking up a thread of that storyline here in one of the most uncomfortable scenes for me in an X-Men comic ever. Uh, and we're going to open with that here. So we open in a fancy stateroom that is all washed out in purple colors. Uh, Cyclops is on top of Jean Grey on a bed as she wakes up. And he's saying, Jean, Jean, baby, wake up. Are you okay? We're finally alone, babe. Them other losers have run off on their own somewhere. And Jean says, Scott, what's wrong? Why are you talking like that? And why, why can't I push you even with my telekinesis? And Cyclops says, come on, baby, don't waste time. Maybe because you don't really... Uh, maybe because you don't really want to, baby. You know you want this as much as I do. And she uses her telepathy to push through the illusion. She's in this dank, gross room, and Mastermind is using his powers to make believe to make Jean believe that Scott is or that Blob is Scott. So uh, we've referenced this on the Blob and Mastermind focused trials on my show, but apparently the plot here is he wanted Blob to fuck Jean, and he got to watch. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. We also see Mastermind say, my power of illusion has its limitations, after all. And telepaths are at the top of that list. It would take a long-term strategy to create in her mind an illusion she wouldn't be able to pierce. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. Let me hear your thoughts on this scene. It's one of two very problematic stories uh, that we're about to talk about. Uh, any thoughts from you guys? I'm just well, like, uh, what? Well, yeah, you take you you take it, Jason. No, no, like, like I, 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 I knew like that. Yeah, Mastermind was a creep, especially like during the whole um, Phoenix Saga uh, story arc, and 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 you know, Blob always having um, feelings for for Jean Grey. But yeah, this was, oh boy, like. Like the, the whole like dingy room and all like it yeah it was such a very uncomfortable uh scene for sure uh carl any thoughts yeah well i'm just i i know that i guess burn thinks he's he, and he is in his in his way setting up uh foreshadowing for the phoenix saga but i'm just like these 
characters already are unsavory to begin with. Do we need to really take them into this realm of like, you know, sexual assault? Uh, because once you once you cast them in this light, you can't unsee them. And that's why, you know, that's why I, I have a hard time when when creators go back and they try to um, add to older continuity or or you know retroactively say things that didn't happen because this just this just makes me. I mean, Mastermind was already creepy enough for me. He didn't need to be in this perverse kind of like you know kind of pulp fiction type you know <laughs> relationship with Blob and. It's it's just weird. It's, it's just weird. So and, and weird. I should, it yeah. We laugh a lot about uh, statements like, if you've ever been a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, it means you're gay. Uh, people intuit that Blob and Eunice are gay sometimes because there's that level of their friendship. Mastermind's not a character we often see portrayed in this way, but in the previous issue in number 12, we see a scene where there's a bunch of girls tending to the Brotherhood. Blob is in the bathtub getting a sponge bath while Must Mastermind and Eunice are just hanging out. And now he's trying to, <laughs> he's trying to help Bob rape this girl. It's a, these so guys weird. have a weird relationship, you guys. It's, it's very so weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we look at the cover of this book very quickly, we do get a beautiful image of Angel in, in the classic Neil Adams blue, uh, blue and white halo costume with uh, Candy and Marvel Girl and Cyclops looking up from beneath. Uh, it's a really pretty cover. Did you guys have thoughts on the cover at all? Um. It's it's a good it's a good burn cover. Um, uh, yeah, not not too much to say. It's it's yeah, it's okay. solid. It, it's of its time, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. Like it, like these are. I don't know. Like, yeah, they, like it's they're it's they're not like again. It's this is not like my favorite uh, time of the X Men. Um, <laughs> and like my favorite team but i mean it it is what it is uh <laughs> it, it yeah. is what it is <laughs> it's it's good at capturing i will say it's good at capturing the the feel of that that retro feel that he's definitely going for so the intent is there and i feel like you know for the most part it follows through so I can cover the rest of this opening section pretty quickly. We're back to Dunphy, Illinois, where Ashley Martin is still mad and trying to reanimate her Sentinel. Then we jump to the Savage Land, where Iceman, Lorna Dane, and Havoc are getting the Sentinel ship working or trying. Guys, they're almost out of the Savage Land, finally. They've been zipping around there for like nine issues. I'm so happy to move on. Uh, and then we see Angel and Cyclops in cages, and Angel's like, oh, hey, it's my girlfriend, and she's wearing Jean's superhero costume. But then the Brotherhood enter with Jean, there's a suggestion that they raped her and that she liked it. And Cyclops is like, what did you guys do to her? Again, very, very uncomfortable. We're treading lightly over that, but it's that's my least favorite part of these stories. Uh, and then we get a bunch of crazy burn mad circus stuff. Uh, Mastermind is using his illusion powers to make the X-Men believe they are battling a circus of like bears and tigers and gorillas and lions and elephants, but also clowns with machine guns that slowly start to kind of mutate into these horrific ver versions of themselves. It's a, it's a fun version. The Brotherhood just wants to fuck with the X-Men. Uh, they used illusions of cash to buy them so that they could just beat them up in this crazy circus. Uh, Jason, do you want to take over with the uh, second half of number 13? Yeah, so, um, okay, so... Cyclops, Angel, and, and Candy, they find himself in the pit of this circus against all these 
uh, circus animals, and uh, and then yeah, you have a a, a clown with a machine gun <laughs> shooting at them, and 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 Blob, and Cyclops is like he like he 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 finds that he can't use his optic blast, and Angel who has wings, he's like. For some reason, I can't fly. It's like you got wings. Like physics should happen no matter what, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh... <laughs> Masterman, <laughs> Masterman creates an illusion of this blob picking Cyclops up, throwing him into Eunice, and then stepping on his head. But it's not actually Blob and Eunice, even though they're right there. I don't know. It's it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah. So yes, yeah, so, so like like the whole time when Cyclops is like trying to shoot his optic blast, and nothing's working. Like things are actually working uh like so like yeah you, you find like cyclops finds himself his head pressed to the ground with with the blob stepping on his head and and he's like like this this can't be this this gotta be illusion like who's behind this like what if i just get up and and he just does and he breaks that illusion and um and then he finds that yeah that that blob actually happens to be make made up and his optic blast uh has uh <laughs> sorry should, should i just start again yeah no you're good the optic blast made him uh made the real blob fall in a hole which is blob's least favorite thing to do is fall in a hole <laughs> yeah yeah uh so yeah uh so scott finds out that mastermind it, it's mastermind all along and and he tells angel and candy uh, with the thumbs up, it's an illusion. <laughs> and Angel's like, of course it is. Uh, and uh, all that time, uh, yeah. Um... And then we're back to Dunphy, Illinois. The uh, the Sentinels trying to reanimate under Ashley Martin's control, and Xavier is very concerned. Oh yes, and then yeah, so we're going to uh, yeah. So Beast is fighting the Sentinel, and. Xavier's like, I got an idea, like, but I dread these consequences. Like, what if I penetrate this girl's mind? Uh, and I'm gonna need like absolute concentration, uh, or else I might destroy her mind. And Ashley's mom is like, No, is like, shut up, I need to concentrate, or else this won't work. Yeah, so let me introduce this for a second. This is the <laughs> other major problem. It, Professor X is a jerk anyway. This is a 10-year-old child who is freaking out because they these mutants attacked her home, basically. And she's lashing out. And Xavier could put her to sleep. He could even, on a crueler level, like erase her memory of this event. But instead, right. what he decides to do is to perform psychic surgery to sever her ability to control her mutant power. He says, quote, I am reaching deep into Ashley Martin's brain, into the very core of her intellect and personality. Uh, so she's he's reaching in as her mother screamed, no, don't do this. And he uh, he decides to just permanently remove this ability. What are your thoughts here? Because this is a big problem. Like, he didn't even ask the mom's consent. He just went along like, this is my only option. I'm going to just do this. And uh, like he and he says, like, I'm going to try to mend a, a Swiss watch with a sledgehammer because <laughs> I guess like his powers were not as precise but still like you're you're still you're, you're taking a big risk on a 10 year old who sure like she was kind of spunky at the start saying like i had enough of you like like you should stay out of this xavier you're making things worse and 
And he hears Xavier's like, I'm going to probe your mind and I'm going to, I might break it. <laughs> well, and Xavier, uh, Xavier's going to start fucking Terry Martin soon. The, the kid's mother, he like hangs out in her house for a while. Oh, it, it doesn't explicitly say that they're fucking, but it's pretty implied. It's also been hinting that if you guys remember in the old continuity, he just saved the world from the Xenox by like uniting all of mankind into one mind to repel these aliens. Then he was so tired that they had to use the Hulk's like game gamma irradiation on him. And they've been noting in the hidden years, like something's wrong with Professor X. Like there's something off about him. Uh, but this is this is this story is uncomfortable. This uh, this like just let me just sever her power in her brain. And it's a kid. It's really gross. Xavier is a dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he he uh, he works his thing, and then um, she faints, and we don't even know the aftermath behind it. Uh, Ashley's mom is like Ashley. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we cut from there. We don't know if uh, Ashley's going to be all right or not. Uh, and then we cut back to Cyclops, and he's uh, he's fighting the illusions again. And, and these illusions have gone like crazier. They're 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 more demonic. They they look like Kiss's Psycho Circus. They're like you know characters from Twisted Metal. Uh, and he and he's he's just shooting away at these these crazy clowns, but he's not even sure if they're real or not, or he doesn't even know if the audience are real or not. Uh, while Angel, who remembers how to fly because he's got wings, he uh, saves uh, Candy, puts her in, in the uh, puts her to safety in a, a tall beam uh, or this tall um, what you call it? Yeah, it's like it's like it's like a, a platform way above at the top of a yeah. ladder. And she's like, "You're not gonna leave me up here, are you?" And he's like, "Safest place I can think of right now, sweet thing." You were. Drops her off in the sky. Like, please don't fall. Bye. <laughs> so he and he goes back to fighting clowns, and and his punches are actually connecting to uh, actual clowns that happen to be in this mad circus. While like Cyclops is trying his hardest to, to keep shooting at things and. And they're not really connecting because they're just going through illusions. And, you know, what if you're like this, this bystander just walking outside the circus, <laughs> not knowing, you're just minding your own business, and you get hit by an optic blast <laughs> out of no page, reason. Page 19 is crazy. There's a the, an illusion of this creepy clown with this big distended belly, another one that's headless and his head is smoking. There's like a a Captain Caveman looking guy with like a big toe. <laughs> it's all weird. Yeah, like serpentine guy. The arts of wild here. It's fun. Very wild indeed. Um, yeah. So they're fighting away, and then we cut back to uh, Jean Grey, who, who's back in this dingy room alone, and uh, she she has her her powers back, and she's uh, she's going to use her powers to unlock the door. Uh, and when she does, she gets out and she finds that her power, like she, she slowly loses her power and she, she faints. And again. Comes, <laughs> again. And out comes uh, the tall man from Phantasm. I mean, uh, Kruger. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then we, 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 we uh, then we cut back to uh, Iceman, Havoc, and Lorna. And uh, they they finally get back to the mansion, and they find that they're home alone. They're like, "Where's everyone?" Like, and uh, and it could not be a quick flight from the Savage Land to New York. Well, it like, is from Antarctica to <laughs> Gray Milky Way. <laughs> <laughs> they they see scorch marks 
uh, I guess, in the living room and are like, what's up with this? What's going on? And uh, but they don't know that it was the Fantastic Four and, and the, the X-Men that had an earlier fight. Um, and then they hear this beeping sound and like, what, what's that? And that's oh, that's a uh, three bro uh, telling them that there's this new mutant that has this big power energy reading uh, in the Himalayas. So please but, stay tuned from like six issues from now when we resolve that plot line. But yes, remember that. Yeah. Ping in the Himalayas. <laughs> because Bobby's like, we, we, we can't pay attention to that now. Like we got to save our friends first. So yeah. Uh, so we focus on, uh, so yeah. So, so Bobby, Havoc and Lorna are off to see their friends and then we cut to the last page, which is um Can I can I take this page, Jason? Yeah, sure. So this is very like Betty Davis 1940s Hollywood, this whole thing. Angel's <laughs> mom is this like waifish looking woman. Her husband has died. Uh, we're gonna learn next issue that she's being slowly poisoned. So so spoilers there. She's looking very emaciated. And Angel's <laughs> like super gay uncle who has to be played by Paul Lind is is like <laughs> romancing her. So we're at the Worthington estate and she says, Thank you, darling. I can't tell you often enough what a comfort you've been to me. Is it any wonder I fell in love with you? A mirror of my own feelings for you, Catherine. You know, I have been in love with you since the first moment Warren introduced us. I could not believe his good fortune that he should have found you first. Let's not speak of that, Bertram. When I think of my husband, it all becomes so painful. I start to think how we're rushing things. You mustn't think that, dearest. My dear brother would not want to mourn forever. You are still a young woman. You have a lifetime before you with me. Yes, with you, dear, dear Bertram. <laughs> I only wish my son could be here for the wedding. Like, I, I wedding? love this shit, you guys. This, like, <laughs> old Hollywood shit is so funny. They have the patio furniture out, all out and, and ready for the ceremony. <laughs> It's so stupid. Uh, Carl, let me hear your one-two punch on uh, Charles Xavier's ethical or unethical use of his powers. Yo, it is so messed up the way Charles Xavier, the way he's portrayed in this comic and in so many comics because, I don't know, growing up when I was reading Professor X, I always, I kind of had more of that Patrick Stewart, uh, you know, vision of him in my head. And... As the years go by and more is revealed about the things he's done in the past and even seeing the story, it's just like, he seems almost as bad as Magneto. Like you guys really should be, you know, take it on the road guys, because you're, you're as creepy as Magneto. Uh, Magneto's yeah, frankly more very, ethical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just very, it's just very callous uh, with the use of his powers, like not really thinking of what, what's most ethical or humane. It's just almost treating uh, humans as as if they're lab lab rats, you know. Uh, I, uh, I referenced yeah. this on the show a few episodes ago, but in October we're doing an entire Magneto prehistory month, uh, so we're going to talk a lot about the ethics of Magneto. But just wait, they're, when you compare them to Charles Xavier, it's a very different experience. 
Uh, on the yeah. cover of X-Men Hidden Years 14, we see an image of the Dazzler who's looking a little bit like the High Evolutionary, but gayer. So misleading. The, the reason why I yeah. picked to do this episode was because I thought this was a High Evolutionary. <laughs> oh my God, we're doing a whole High right, Evolutionary right, episode right. in August though, Jason. So and, and, and I thought but uh, I thought Dazzler was going to be in the story too. So I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> the High Evolutionary and Dazzler? Yeah, sign me up for this issue. It's like, wait, none of them are in this issue? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he has a little dash of swordsman in there too. Yes, you know, absolutely. Without, without the sword. sword. Yeah. This this is the last uh, couple issues where we get to talk about this guy on my show, but he's he's so over the top. If you recall, he has tech that allows him to shine light powers. And the uh the the words on the bottom say bedazzled exclamation point as the X-Men are like hit with a force of light. Cyclops is being so dramatic here. There's also a note uh handwritten uh where Byrne is just like saying a grateful uh you know, my gratitude, a tip of the hat to Neil Adams in the corner of this. <laughs> Uh, as we are opening this issue number 14, we get a recap. They're still all divided up. Mastermind has everyone in uh, very confused. And we see uh, we see Candy being put back on the platform. Uh, this is not what my dad had in mind when he sent me to finishing school. Peter uh, <laughs> and his operatives have Jean Grey, who has fainted again. We jump back to Beast, who is very tenderly cradling Charles Xavier, whose wheelchair has been destroyed. He's just holding him like a little baby. While Terry Mother or Terry Martin is literally creating, cradling her actual child <laughs> like a baby. And Xavier says, I used my telepathy to reach deep into the mind of young Ashley Martin McCoy. I severed her consciousness from those parts of her brain that govern her mutation. And then the cops show up and he's using his powers on the cops. And uh, Iceman and Havoc and Lorna are back at the mansion finally. Literally, we just jump from like character to character in these issues. It's kind of intense sometimes. <laughs> it's not very seamless. Uh, meanwhile, Kruger's powers are now taking away the powers of all the other mutants. So the illusions are starting to fade. And Kruger's like, that money you paid me is fake. And Blob's like, fuck you. And Kruger <laughs> like, just pushes him over. Just literally, like it's like a finger on the head knocks him down. He says, spare me your strutting boots. <laughs> To others, you may be the fearsome blob, but to one with my power, you are merely one more fat man, which is awful. And then Eunice is like, oh my gosh, those freaks can touch me now. And then the illusions are breaking more. The X-Men realize there's just a couple clowns there and they're in a pup tent. And then the clowns run away. <laughs> but Kruger still has Jean. And then Candy Southern gives us her power move. She swings down on a ladder and fucking kicks him in the face. Yay! And then Jean wakes up. And tries helping the freaks, quote unquote, realize that they only thought Kruger had been nice to them. He's like, they're like, he gave us a job and a home and everyone else hates us. And she's like, actually, he's a big jerk. And she later admits that she used her powers on them to like make them dissipate. Who knows what happened to these characters afterward? It's very uncomfortable. Uh, and then the police supposedly arrive. And Blob and Eunice seem to be knocked out. And Matt, they're like, well, go ahead. Cyclops is like, please arrest them. Maybe call the Avengers. But as they're driving away, they're like, oh, wait. Maybe those cops were actually an illusion created by Mastermind. Again, we'll see these guys later <laughs> back when we get to Amazing <laughs> Adventures on my show. Uh, and Candy's like, wow, those cops were kind of like anti-mutants. That's awful for you guys. And then Avia's finally here. And I hate this character. But she rushes up to hug Warren. And Candy's like, well, oh she seems glad to see you, Angel. Uh, we just covered a lot of ground. What are your thoughts, you guys, on uh, Avia, on uh, the resolution of these uh, these characters in this giant battle? What are your thoughts here? 
Avia, that, that was my first look of Avia. <laughs> that was Ooh. my first introduction. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> and like, and, like in, in a bikini and like, uh, like just, I don't know, wings for arms. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, she looks very lost and um, not really sentient, like not really like there. I don't know. Um, she yeah. was just pinned to a wall a couple issues ago. It's uh, this character. Oof. Uh, Carl, any thoughts on Avia? Avia was... <laughs> well, first of all, the way Avia looks is, you know, it's... It's, um, it's weird. I, I'll say that. Um, what, what really struck me as weird about Avia is that she's introduced in, like, uh, you know, a couple of panels and then they're saying that they should take her back to Antarctica, but then they're just like, not yet. We can't go. <laughs> and then we never see her again for the rest of the book. It's it's really odd. The so way, um, hang on. In a, few, with characters. in a few issues, she will be captured by Craven the Hunter <laughs> and used as bait. And that's literally her chronology. She, she doesn't. Of course she will. The series. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other really satisfying moments for me in this first section, Kruger just pushing Blob over, even though he was really cruel. It's really funny. And on page, I think it's page 10, there's an image where Kruger is pulling Jean's head up. She's she's looking around. Oh, yeah. She's had a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, Carl, will you guide <laughs> us through the last half of the issue? Of course. Um, so we pick up with... Uh almost uh interesting how it becomes a completely new story midway through the issue when the cop uh tells the x-men that since they don't have any outstanding warrants out for them that uh that they can pretty much leave they're not welcome around there so the x-men leave they get into their uh their x-men jet we see avia introduced it's, i think it's also interesting that they have a jet that says x-men on the side of it um, <laughs> um cool logo <laughs> is this is, 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 is cool or are they mutant outlaws or what's the deal yeah that's, um, that's a bold that's a bold decision so uh so then we decide that we're not going to favor a side trip to antarctica uh which is probably good because you know we've already had enough savage land but like i said avia is is then promptly dropped from uh the plot and then we're introduced to the real reason why Candy Southern showed up, and it's involved. It's involving uh, Warren's mother, who's about to marry his uncle, who also murdered his father. Dun dun dun! So it's very much like um, instead of a dun dun dun, I feel like we need like a telenovela. No, right, right, like that organ, that soap opera organ. So we move into this plot where Warren is returning home to Long Island because his uncle, the evil mutant, the Dazzler, has has concocted this plot where he's going to uh, marry Warren's mother, uh, who is very sick, very ailing, very uh, mother's little helper, uh, long day's journey in tonight type of trope of, uh, you know, just the adult bedridden aging rich woman who I'm quite familiar with from Emma Frost. 
this issue this issue is titled yet no more like my father, father and one right. of the tropes that it mentions multiple times here is how angel's family are big secret keepers he's never told yeah. them about being a mutant he's never told his mother about how his dad died they kind of don't talk to each other, but the but the title of the issue is "No More Like My Father," which yeah, no, he kind of is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's all. It seems like it's all in the interest of sparing, um, thinking that the truth will cause further harm, but it just seems to take them down a rabbit hole of just like more lies. So we have the X Men flying out to Long Island in, in their X Men jet um, and landing far enough away from the uh warren's estate so that no one suspects that they're the x-men when they're uh, on the so jet, they, they mention they mention how warren didn't want alex or lorna to come they're like they're not part of us like i only want my original friends and we'll see that picked up on next issue we also see uh cyclops challenge gene on what she did to kruger's opera right and how she used her power right we find out we find out that she was the one who actually used her power to kind of nudge them into behaving uh you know the way that she wanted them to and, and kind of backing down. Um, and she's kind of citing Professor X uh, as sort of an influence on her on her actions. So um, we get a brief recap of the story. I guess it was told in, um, in Kazar. Kazar and Marvel uh, Tales, yep. And Marvel Tales of how uh, Angel's father died. Um, you know, how his uncle was responsible for it, uh, his diamond smuggling operation. Um, but then his uncle was believed to be dead because he, uh, he had the choice of saving either his uncle or, or Candy, um, and he chose Candy. When but there was born. clearly no body, Warren, so you did not listen to... Yeah. <laughs> like, you did not check to see if this man died. <laughs> so, uh... They they return home and then there's they're introduced to Doctor Stewart who is the doctor I believe who who delivered Warren and who was first present when his wings who he uh who he uh confided in when his wings uh first started to uh, manifest. Uh, that will be relevant later because Warren's the only or the doctor is the only person in this circle that knows Warren was a mutant before Evil Uncle Bert came into the picture. Right. So. Um, once again, that theme of, of secrets and choices, wrong choices being made um, with a little Shakespeare thrown in because it's very, uh, very burn, which is also very Star Trek, which is also very burn. <laughs> can't quote, can't, you know, for a little legitimacy, we're not, we can't just be a comic book. <laughs> so, uh, they're reintroduced to his uncle, who's sort of, you were saying it was sort of like Paul Lynn, but I'm thinking more of like James Mason from North by Northwest. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> who manifests his power out of nowhere. He's not provoked or anything. It's just, you know, they kind of, they kind of talk, they kind of have harsh words with him. And then he manifests his power and it's blinding. But then he, he stands down when uh, Warren's mother walks in and she's like, Bert? And he's like, uh, immediately depowers. And she's like, oh, I, I thought I could have, what was that strange light? And the doctor, Dr. Stu is like, sunlight glinting on the chandelier, I should imagine, Catherine. You know, uh, and she completely buys it. But this What is, would have happened is, if she arrived five minutes later and like he would have like just knocked them all out and like the mom would see like just a bunch of teenagers on the floor. It's like, what's going on here? 
This... That's the story. That's the story that I would actually want to see because right <laughs> now I felt like I was reading the X Men in like an early seventies soap opera. Like I'm talking like Edge of Night or or Secret Hospital, something like that. Where it's just like even the ending where uh, Warren wants to tell his mother um, about you know that basically, hey, you're about to marry you know the my father's killer who's also an evil mutant. With you know that's really loaded, um, and the doctor's like, "Well, no, you can't tell her because she she you know she's been through so much since your father died. Um, her mind is too fragile, and that's literally the cliffhanger. Is like it is literally a soap opera cliffhanger where he's like, "I fear the shock would break her heart, and in her present delicate condition, that would most certainly kill her." You know, and that's like the cliffhanger, not like not like the X-Men hanging from like danger or something about to like explode. Like it's just it's just very much like, oh, OK, if we tell your mother the truth, like that's going to kill her. That's the it's, big cliff. The cliffhanger. Is very <laughs> it is. Like, okay. like, I, I've seen Revenge of the Sith. Like I, I've seen how uh, Queen Amidala died, like from a broken heart. You don't want <laughs> that to happen. Horns, Mom. We have in these two issues, six women. Six female characters, <laughs> Ashley and Terry, Ashley, whose powers were removed without her asking for it while her mother screamed for her daughter. And then we have Jean, who fainted and briefly used her powers and then fainted again. Then we have Candy. Right. Candy got to kick a guy in the face. That's the only action moment for any right. women. She's then we have given Avia. some sort of agency. We have Avia, who kind of stumbled out, stumbled into someone, and then fell over. And then we have Catherine, who's this woman who's being slowly poisoned and is like, oh, I have no idea what's going on. The <laughs> really... story is not kind to any of the female characters, which is which is staggering to realize. I mean, I knew when I, when I saw it, it's John Byrne that's writing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, seems, it seems so oblivious of itself as well. Avia's the uh, the representative of that we see through the whole hidden years. She is literally mute, uh, and she never gets anything to do. She ha she can't speak, and just shit just keeps happening to her. Well, she kisses, she kisses, she kisses Warren. What do you mean she has nothing to do? <laughs> she kisses the hero. This she is kisses rough, the hero. This is a rough era. There's some fun moments, but there's uh there's some rough stories here. Uh, this has been nah, a genuine nah. delight, you guys. I'd love to hear your final thoughts on these books. Well, I, mean, I, I would say if there was some intent behind all of this, like say, like Byrne were almost parroting those comics from the 1970s, I, I would give it some some credence. But it's like, I would say the comics in the 70s weren't even this bad in the representation of women. And, you know, like, just, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's an homage and a throwback, but not necessarily one that, that I, you know, I can really sign off on because it's like, it's cringy and creepy. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Weird. The mad, the mad circus stuff is really fun, but this, this stuff with the women and this, oof, yeah, it's rough. Uh, Jason, you have final thoughts. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the, I, I, I guess like <laughs> it, it's, uh, uh, I had fun reading this issue only because it's for this podcast. Like this is <laughs> definitely not something I would read on my own. <laughs> like at my own will um yeah. and and yeah and obviously we know the reasons why uh 
Yeah, it, it's it's definitely he, he's trying to like just capture stories of its time of like the seventies and eighties. But like you know, John Byrne, he has a a very retro um, point of view of of like how he likes to tell his, his superhero stories, and and this is it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, it's, we've got four more uh, episodes dedicated to the Hidden Years. So we're going to be powering through it, just five episodes in a row. I know we've been taking a little break along the way, but we're just uh, our next five. And we've got some major talent coming up to review uh, all of these with us. Uh, Jason and Carl, this has been just a genuine delight to get to know you both today, to hear your stories, and then just to nerd out with you. Thank you. This has been uh, so much fun. Uh, as Thank we you, are, Jack. As we're wrapping up, uh, tell people where they can find you online. And we're going to put this episode out on August 7th. Is there anything you would like to plug personally or professionally? Uh, now's a great time. Uh, let's go, Jason, and then Carl. Um, Yeah, uh, I guess, yeah, Extreme Venomverse, issue number five. I did a story there uh, that comes out uh, July 19th and Iron Man Annual, uh, which we talked about featuring Storm. Uh, that will be out mid-August. And then Carl. Well, I just wrapped up a stint uh, as senior editor at Bad Idea. I've been editing more or less for the past five years, uh, first at Valiant and um, at Bad Idea. And it's been uh, it's been amazing working with all the talented people um, that I've come to know there. Uh, Matt Kent, Tomas Giarello, Louis LaRosa, Doug Braithwaite, Adam Felina, just like the list goes on and on, but I've just been finding that I'd really like to get back to writing. Um, and that's been my focus this year. Um, I'm working with um, a filmmaker uh, who's London based. His name is Bafakoto. That's probably the last editorial project that I'm going to be working on him with. It's uh, a horror based story that kind of ties into his second film. Um, that's someone who I think is really going to blow up and people should be on the lookout for. Um, but I'm also going to be co-writing um, some stuff with um, someone who uh, has been in the industry for 20 years now, who is a very good friend of mine who's worked at Marvel and Valiant and Bad Idea. And um, you should um, be on the lookout for stuff from us in the future, because I think what we're going to have is a, is a pretty amazing collaboration there. So stay tuned. I am thrilled. Where can people find you uh, online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and on Facebook. Just under Carl Ballers? Under Carl Ballers, yes. K-A-R-L-B-O-L-L-E-R-S, everybody. Uh, I'm super excited to hear uh, the announcements as they are made. Uh, lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the two of you are welcome to add me. But you guys can follow Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP Like Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. The next episode coming out immediately after this will delve into X-Men The Hidden Years numbers 15 and 16 with the incredible combination of Sarah Gailey, Dan Waters, and Alicia Wilder joining us. Uh, and then on the Patreon channel, the next couple of episodes after this are going to feature the character Gossamer with my friends at Rage Gear Studios. And then an episode on Gatecrasher with Jordan White and Anna Papard that we just recorded. And it's a genuine delight. And uh, uh, Carl, this is me officially asking you back on to do a show on uh, your Muties series with me. But I'll be in touch. Uh, would we, <laughs> I, I would love to talk about that title with you. I'd love, I'd love to discuss it with you. Yeah, that'd be super yeah. fun. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, I had a genuinely great time today. Thanks for your time and talents. We will see you back here next time on Dream on the Lane.
Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.